Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing times, the changing world, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is November 9th, 2009. It's a Monday. It's a dreary, gray Monday at 69 degrees, and uh, uh, I am on the highway in the personal mobile studio again. So if this is your first show and you're thinking, what's that background noise? It's uh, I-20 right now, and it will be several other highways before I get to where I'm going and wrap things up for today. Today's going to be a listener question show. It's, com- it's become sort of a semi-tradition for Mondays. I collect questions all throughout the week, and then in the following week I answer the ones that I can answer on the air on a show like this. So that's what we're going to do today. Before that, though, let's knock out some housekeeping. Number one, let's talk about our sponsor. Of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle. Uh, what is so cool about the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle? Well, it filters down to 0.015 microns, which means it is the only filtering bottle I know of anyway in the world that can filter out bacterium and viruses. This will make almost any water safe to drink. Um, it is available to you from uh, one of our site sponsors, Ready Made Resources. Check this thing out. It is really cool. I'm expecting to send them Spence. I'm expecting them to send me one to review uh, for the product showcase, but it hasn't showed up yet. Uh, sponsor day number two, Western Botanicals. Just had Dr. Kyle Christensen on as a guest about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago now. Excellent herbal uh, supplements and herbal remedies. Uh, really cool stuff. Check out the site. Uh, if you haven't heard the interview with uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen, just go and uh, type in Kyle Christensen, K-Y-L-E, into the uh, search box on the site. You'll have no trouble finding it. I'll link to it from today's show notes. But it'll be, give you a good idea where to start uh, with, uh, with you know, taking care of yourself a little bit better uh, and doing so with things that are natural and gentle. And with that, let's go on and uh, say, hey, get involved with our forum. If you go to survivalpodcast.com, you'll see a link to the forum. Or just go to the survivalpodcast.com slash forum, and you'll find our forum. Thousands of members growing every day, uh, people waiting to interact with you. And there is, I'll tell you what. What, folks, a college education, the heck with that, a Ph.D. in preparedness waiting there for you for free with the information that's been laid down over the past year. It's amazing the repository of knowledge that we've created there. So please avail yourself of it. Last but not least, you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode? Uh, if you think every time you hear me get on the air and talk to you that was worth two dimes, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members with uh, lots of great stuff. In fact, I want to give you guys a quick update about what happened over the past weekend and what's being made available to MSB members uh, sometime this week. Uh, we did a video, first real full tilt video with the new recording gear, uh, wireless microphones, HD camera, that type of thing on uh, cooking doves. 
pulled some doves out of the freezer, made some doves wrapped in bacon with jalapenos and garlic on the grill, uh, basted and marinated with Worcestershire sauce and beer. Absolutely one of my favorite things in the world to eat. Video's a little under 15 minutes long. I'm going to have to figure out exactly what format I'm going to be using, though, for videos in the MSB going forward because I put this thing out as a Windows Media video, and it was at a uh, 640 resolution, over 300 meg. So I'm generating it as a .mov right now, and I'm going to see what I can do about that. Um, I also generated them in 320 size. I'm just not happy with the image quality. I do think I'm going to go with the iPod versions in the lower size because they're made for iPods. So it doesn't seem like there's really a benefit to having a 640 resolution that's going to be played on a little mini iPod screen. Uh, but I'll keep working on that. But that video's coming out. Um, I also got an email from, or a PM from the forum today. Got it put out a uh, ebook on making earthen ovens that he's going to be selling for $18, donating that to the MSB to our members for free. So yet we add more value. So we keep adding. I just wanted you to know that. I also updated the MSB this weekend. Uh, On the front page, it's a little bit more clear now where everything's at. So if you're a member, haven't been there in a while, log in, check it out. I don't like to eat a lot of time up with housekeeping, but wanted to tell you guys that today. Another thing, really cool video that will be coming out probably tomorrow or the next day. Um, After we made the doves, I sat down at the table and I ate them. And uh, my cat, Ralph, joined me, sat in the chair next to me, and... uh, uh, feasted along with me on some tidbits, and my wife just got the camera and pointed at it. So I'm going to do something kind of quirky and funny with that footage. I think you'll like it. Keep an eye out on a YouTube channel, uh, and you, you'll see that coming up this week. And if you're not a subscriber to our YouTube channel, please do that. All right, so let's get into some questions. Number one, a uh, guy named David sent me this question. This is an outstanding question, and uh, I can't give you a complete answer. I can only tell you some thoughts on this because it's a complex question. Uh, David has livestock. He has over a hundred rabbits. All right. He has some goats and uh, some other larger stock as well. And he wanted to, see, you know, if I could give him some ideas on prepping for, li- for for livestock and what to do if you have to bug out with how much livestock. Um, first, I'll tell you what. David's on the right track because he said what I would probably do in all but the absolute, I have to go. I would bug in, and I think that's generally a good good idea for most people to bug in unless you absolutely have to bug out. You have all your stuff and your comforts right there, so stay put. But if there were like a chemical spill, uh, a nuclear spill, um, a wildfire, there's certain things that threaten life and limb and you got to go. And he said, the only thing I can think to do then is take a, you know, maybe a few rabbit hutches with me and turn the, the, the livestock loose and, and hopefully they'll, they'll be okay. At least you'll get them out of the barn, so to speak, and uh, put them out in the pasture. And uh, I hate to tell you, there may not be much else that you can do to that. Now, with livestock, you've got to be careful. Uh, there can be dangers associated with doing things like that. But uh, I, I sure wouldn't want animals locked up and dealing with a fire or a chemical spill or simply you don't come back long enough and they sit there and starve. So I would probably either turn them loose or slaughter them. Um, depending on the situation, depending on the potential for return. Um, with rabbits, I don't see rabbits going crazy and killing a bunch of people or anything, but um, with rabbits, I may take your few hutches, and if you're not going to be back for a long time, I may be uh, salting the heck out of some rabbit meat to go with me, just to be blunt. 
uh, because you may need that protein. So that's and that's something that can be done with any livestock if you have the time uh, to do it. But this is a tough one. More on prepping for them, I think, is a better approach. Being prepared. Um, David's keeping at least a month of reserve feed at any given time for his livestock. I think that's good. Um, I think you have such a advantage with all that livestock. You need to realize the value of that asset, and I would probably extend my reserves for the livestock to at least 60 days. Because if you have rabbits that are you know, productive in producing uh, baby rabbits that turn into fryers that you eat, if you have goats that produce milk, if you have chickens, if you have, uh, I don't remember some of the other stock he has, but quite a bit, it's like smaller numbers of everything else. All of those animals are resources. And your feed for them is your preservation of them as an asset. It allows you to keep them as a continuous resource rather than turn them into a one-time resource. And what I mean is that that doe rabbit that can produce, you know, three or four litters for you over the next eight months uh, is producing a lot more for you that way than if you're, if you, you know, you're you're taking her out and you're eating her. Right, she's a much more valuable resource. A goat that's producing dairy for you and maybe a couple kids um, over a couple of years is going to produce a hell of a lot more for you that way than uh, slaughtering her and using her just for the meat one time. There's a long-term asset there, and I think that that's something that you need to look at preserving a little bit beyond 30 days. I also think that maybe you need to start growing some things for your livestock to consume. I don't know how big your place is. I think you told me I really don't remember, but I think from what I got out of it, it's a pretty decent-sized place. And even if it's just like a, um, you know, a, 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 say 25 by 25 foot patch of uh, various clover that's good for your rabbits and your uh, and your uh, your goats to eat would be an excellent thing to add to what you're doing. Let some of it go to seed. Let it reseed itself. You can take, let's say, then 60 days worth of feed and a couple food plots, and by using them and then by recycling things that you would normally compost or giving it to your stock, using their manure instead of the compost, faster anyway, um, you can actually take maybe that 60-day feed and stretch your animals out to maybe as far as 120 days of sufficiency by taking that approach, even with a very small uh, addition. And then you can always, if you got past, that period, and you got to a point where it was a long-term shit-hit-the-fan scenario, you can always scale back your head count and eat some of them and use them as a protein source, but keep good breeding animals so that you can bring it back up uh, should times get better or should you find a new way to provide feed for them. But I think you really need to think about preserving that asset heavily. I, I think you really need to make sure that you, you kind of seem to be on that track. You don't really seem to see your animals as a liability. You see the asset value, the only liability is what if I have to leave? And uh, your plan of, you know, at least what's safe to do it with, uh, to set it free in pasture rather than leave it in a barn to burn is probably the best you can do. If if you have animals that would be a danger to the local ecosystem, and I hate to say it, rabbits might be. Uh, rabbits might be more than a couple goats or something uh, because rabbits reproduce so fast and the rabbits that you're keeping for, um, for stock are probably not cottontails. They're probably not native animals. So they could be a real problem. Uh, if you got local cats in the area, domesticated rabbits aren't going to make it very long anyway. But uh, especially some stray dogs running around.
around. But I, I would worry about that. You may, in any individual situation, you have to make your own decision, but I want you to be prepared for the fact that you may have to do a mass slaughter at some point in certain scenarios. Uh, sorry to be glum on that, but that's just the way it is. That's part of keeping animals. Uh, let's go on to uh, the next question. A uh, good one here. Simple one, too. A uh, person says, I like the idea that you have about keeping extra propane tanks for your grill, but I want to know how the heck do I store them? I've heard I'm not supposed to store them indoors, not even in a garage. And uh, But then what do I do? Okay, well, here's, here's a couple of different things. One, I store mine... Um, in kind of a woodshed type arrangement that I have that's open in the front so that if there was a leak that's not going to contain the, the, the gas in a pocket and that's the reason they say not to store them inside. Now, the reality here is that a tank, a uh, propane tank designed to work with a grill, the modern tanks are very unlikely to leak and there is a smell if they leak that you, you know, you'll notice. Um, I still probably wouldn't be comfortable with them in a garage. Um, they are quite robust, and l- let me tell you, there's two different ways to look at this. Are you doing a cylinder exchange, or are you having your cylinders refilled? This has a great deal with how much protection you need to give your cylinders. Um, if you look at any of the places that do cylinder exchange, you have all these cages that are right outside exposed to the element. The only cover for your tanks is overhead. It works for them, but those tanks are being rotated through. Well, if you're doing cylinder exchanges, and you're keeping three or four reserve tanks, and you're going through those three to four reserve tanks at least once a year, you can pretty much set them anywhere and not really worry about it outside. Don't worry about the elements that much. Uh, throwing a tarp over them would be helpful just to keep, uh, you know, kind of water off the top, but they're quite robust. Uh, but I keep mine in a, in a woodshed arrangement, um, and I find that to probably be the safest place for them. But I've also come home and, and had, you know, the tanks and not felt like putting them away and set them out in the backyard on the side of the house and left them out exposed to the elements for a couple of days, and it, it just ain't that big a deal. If I was doing the refill model, uh, which when we moved to Arkansas, I very well may do because there's a, a U-Haul that does that not far from my bug-out location, and it's less expensive to do that, um, then I might worry about maybe creating a little bit more of a dedicated storage area. But anything that keeps the basic elements off them is more than enough. You do not want to store propane tanks in any kind of enclosed building. It's just a safe thing to do. I just want to again point out the risk is extremely minimal, but it is there and it is present. So it's something I definitely wouldn't do. I guess another way to think about this, how many RVs have you seen running around with two of the uh, propane tanks just bolted on the front of them, what protects those from the elements? Pretty much nothing. So again, a simple cover of some sort is probably all you need. Uh, you don't really have to worry about animals damaging them. Nothing likes to eat propane. It doesn't. Its storage life is basically infinite. Uh, I had a, a little RV we used to use as a hunting camp up in Pennsylvania, and that one propane tank probably lasted five seasons because we were only up there a week at a time uh, once a year for bear season. And uh, out of five years, uh, the, the, it was, you know, the reason it stopped working is the gas ran out. Uh, it never went bad, and that thing was barely protected at all. I think we had a piece of plywood laid over the top of it. And uh, so I wouldn't overthink that one, but good question. Next one, um, guy asked me, uh, that was Josh that asked that last question. I want to start using first names here. So Stuart from the U.K., 
um, asked me what is the maximum price over spot that I would entertain paying for silver coins. And uh, he says the only place he can find them in the UK is through a website that's UK based and it's much 40% over spot and that seems to be too much. And he also asked us a second half of this question that I'll cover in a second. Um, and his problem is they don't have coin shops all over the UK apparently like we do in the United States. I find that odd. I really do. I, I didn't know that, so I'm at a loss for exactly how to uh, to advise you here. The one thing that I would say, though, is make sure when you're talking about price over spot, you're talking about the right price over spot. You see, there's a lot of different quote-unquote spot prices, right, in the silver market. One of them is the spot price for an ounce of silver. The other is a spot price for the, the, the form of the silver that you're purchasing. In other words, pre-64 silver U.S. coinage has a different spot price than the spot price for silver. American silver eagles have a different spot price than pure bullion. So make sure you're looking at the spot price, but... Even in your scenario, anything that's 20% over spot price or higher really starts to concern me. It seems like you should be able to find a better price for that. The other side of that, though, is that means that's what people in your market are paying in most instances. So... I don't know. I would do a little bit more research in the local market over there in the U.K. Uh, I have a business partner from the U.K. I'll talk to him. He won't be back till later this week. He's in India right now. And uh, see if he knows anything about where to find coins in the U.K. for you. Um, but that's too much. 40% over spots too much. Unless... You're missing the premium for the form of currency. You know, so I don't know what, what you're looking at. If you're looking at Silver Eagles over there, what do they trade for on the international market versus a pure bullion price? But it would seem like in the United Kingdom you should be able to go somewhere and buy silver. Unless your government has some kind of weird regulation that prevents that that I don't know about. Um, so the other thing I would advise you maybe is if you ever travel outside the United Kingdom, uh, there's probably a small amount of silver or any other coin that you can bring back and forth without saying anything about, and you might want to consider that. Don't know how your local law enforces it. Uh, local law affects that. you got to figure that out for yourself. But I would avail myself when traveling of any legal opportunity to purchase uh, silver or any other metal commodity that you're interested in that you have a difficulty purchasing in your own country, be that the U.K. or anywhere else in the world. And the next question he asked me is, what do I think of platinum and palladium coins as a hedge against inflation? Uh, I guess that would mean versus, let's say, gold, which would be something that would be in the same ballpark price range. Um, I think they're, it's a good thing. Um, palladium and platinum uh, both have industrial value that gold does not. Um, they, at times, are more expensive than gold. At times, they're less expensive than gold. That, that kind of moves back and forth. Um, they've proven to be more volatile than gold, which if you're a, like a tr- you know an investor that's doing market timing and all, which I don't advocate, but there's people that are good at it. And if, you, if you're that type of investor, volatility is good because it gives you more ups and downs to work with if you're trading it, you know, at your volatile low and high uh, aggregate points. 
my problem with palladium and platinum is that it's never been seen, as far as I know, in the history of the world to be a currency equivalent. It's simply a valuable metal. So I wouldn't tell you not to cons- include platinum in your, uh, uh, your portfolio or even palladium, and I even own a little bit of platinum myself. I just would not do it to the exclusion of something like gold. And I didn't get a chance to check the prices today. But I think gold's high right now. And, I mean, I'll, I'll do an update tomorrow on this when I get a chance to look. I haven't really paid attention to palladium and platinum much recently at all. Um, but they may be a better buy right now as a higher-end metal than gold just because of this huge run-up that golds have that, that, that I don't think is sustainable in the, the mid-short term. All right, So the short to mid-term, I think we're going to see gold fall back below 1000 maybe down in the $800 range. That's just my guess. But since I feel that way, I'm not buying gold right now. So let me take a look at the historical prices of platinum and palladium and where it's at today relevant to that and, and against gold. And uh, probably a good thing for me to do in evaluating gold anyway. So thanks for asking the question. But my short answer on it, it's a good metal. Um, historically, has always had uh, value. Has industrial uses, gold doesn't, but don't do one in exclusion of the other. Um, next one. This is a complex one uh, from a guy named Ted. And uh, Ted says that there's a lady in his area near his uh, dad's place. I think it actually borders his dad's place um, that has an 80-acre farm, and her husband just died. Now, she wants to sell the land because capital gains are low right now, and as as a person in her age bracket, she can make pretty much as much money as she wants off real estate anyway, um, as far as I know. Uh, In fact, if she hasn't sold a lot of real estate, this may not be that big an issue. The federal government allows you to make up on personal real estate now up to a half a million dollars before you pay a dime of taxes on sale of personal real estate. So I don't think she's selling it for that much, so this may not be as big a tax issue uh, as uh, as you think it is, except that she wants the cash, which I think is probably more important. She's probably an older lady. Her husband's gone. She's probably living on retirement. It's probably not that much. The, the, the property probably has an expense, taxes, what have you. She wants money, and she doesn't want the responsibility to pay for land, but she doesn't want to move. So Ted's idea was to set up a living trust for the land and allow her to live on the land rent-free, rent and I guess Yes, he would set up the living trust so that when she deceased, he would inherit it. I guess that's what his angle was. Um, let me tell you, I'm not a big fan of living trusts for land, unless we're talking about pr- protecting multi-million dollar estates. Uh, there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of... Um, unseen consequences to living trust. The the people that set them up and talk about them talk about all the benefits, but they don't talk about any of the downside. Let me bounce this idea off you. This lady is obviously elderly. You're obviously willing to entertain the idea of allowing her to live on the property for the rest of her life. Um, Why don't you buy the property outright And as a condition of the sell, issue her a lease to lease the property for something inexpensive, but charge her something in rent. Uh, Because you're going to pay, she's going to get your cash. So maybe, and to make it legal, maybe it's $100 a month, right? $100 a month um, and give her a guaranteed lease for 
20 years. You know, if she's going to live 20 years. If, if she's, you don't think she's going to live that long, you can do it shorter. But what's the harm? You have the lease cease on her death. And lease her house to her, but own the land. This gives you 100% control of the land. And if you want to build another structure on it, there's nothing to hinder that. If you want to break a segment off and sell it to somebody, another family member or a close friend, because you're concerned about that, that's part of why you want to do this, you can do that. But it gives you complete flexibility as the landowner. It gives her a guarantee of living in the home. There's no living trust to contend with. The fees to set it up, the hindrances that it creates, um, and it's it's completely, totally clean. It's totally legal. It's a good deal for everybody. And by charging her some amount of rent, um, you're going to have her be a better, let's say, tenant for you in the long run. And what I would do with that token 100 bucks is I would just throw it into a, we'll call it a maintenance account. Maybe it's a, a little piece of your own checking account you just don't touch. Maybe you go ahead and set up a separate account for it. Maybe you put the money in a jar. I don't know. But when she calls you and says, my toilet doesn't work, uh, or there's a leak in the roof, or whatever, and she will, it will happen, that little bit of funding is what you're using to maintain the property. And I would tell her that flat out from the beginning. Look, there's going to be things that you're going to need taken care of when you're here. I'm going to set this money aside. And I think that's a great way to do this. And folks, the reason I take questions like this that are specific, when it comes to finding and buying and, 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 and controlling real estate, which is a huge thing to increase your wealth and increase your sustainability to be able to outright own land, there are a million ways to get around, I can't buy land right now. The more ways you hear about other people buying land and the more creative solutions you'll, you hear about, the more likely you are when you go out to buy land to figure out a solution to a complex problem like this. So that would be one of my solutions. I don't know if it's the best. I would consult with uh, somebody that specializes in real estate, not an agent, a real estate law person, someone like a lawyer that specializes in real estate, and say, hey, I'm considering this. What are some other options? And what I would do is I would, anytime you consult with a real estate lawyer, say, look, I'm looking for consulting right now. I'll pay you an hourly rate. What's it, 250 300 bucks. But if I have something done, I'm going to want you to refer me to somebody else. Because that takes away that agent from saying, oh, living trust is the way to go. Don't listen to that crazy guy on a podcast because he wants the fee for setting up the trust. Right? If he's not going to make the fee on anything setting up, you're going to get 100% unbiased advice. And don't go to your brother who's an attorney or something. You need an attorney that specializes in real estate, specifically someone from the area that deals with local law, that understands local ordinance and understands rural land and things like agricultural zoning. That's the person you need to bounce this idea off of. But bounce my idea off of it might be a great one to go with. Um, and I think that your your person you want to buy from would be highly receptive to it as well. Um, $100 a month is $1,200 a year. If she lives 10 years, she's living the next 10 years for $12,000. But yeah, you have $12,000 to keep her house maintained as your tenant. Because either way you do this, she becomes your tenant. All right, so next one.
Uh, pretty cool question here. What do I think of the new iPod Nano? Um, if they had a still camera, he says he would buy it because that would do everything they wanted. Looking for an all-in-one device. Um, iPod Nano, that's okay. Uh, the new one. I, 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 I'm answering this in comparative to the, the older iPod Nano, the one my wife's running around with. And she doesn't even have the cool thin one. She has the, the original kind of like look like a mini classic. And uh, would I upgrade hers to that? Probably not, except that the fact that her 8 gigs are about maxed out, and the new iPod Nano for 150 bucks uh, is an 8 gig, but I think for under 200 you can get it with a 16 gig, and she likes the small form factor versus like the classic or an iPhone, so I might do it for her, but I'm doing it for the expanded uh, memory capability. From what I've heard, the video camera in that thing is crap. It is completely useless, and you'll never use it. That's how I've heard it, re- heard it reviewed on like four different tech blogs. The video camera is pointless. The big addition to the iPod Nano this year is um, a radio. It has an FM radio. I think that's really cool, and I, I don't know what's taken iPod so long to do it. And um, all the Zoom players from uh, Microsoft come with a radio, and I don't really get why it's taking Apple so long to do this. But that said, they're not putting it in the new version of the Classic. They're not putting it in the iPhone yet. Um, it's only the Nano that has this. So I guess if you want a radio in your iPod, that's the only way you're going to get it. But let me think here for a second. Um, a small transistor radio is pretty cheap, and you can just buy one of those and throw it in your attache case or glove box and have it if you need it anywhere. And what could I buy that would do everything that that little iPod Nano did, including giving me 16 megabits of memory if I just bought a big enough BlackBerry? And I think that a lot of people out there that are using, if you're not using an iPhone and you want a good smartphone, boy, there's nothing wrong with a good BlackBerry. And uh, I've got a BlackBerry that takes uh, memory cards, and I can easily pop an 8 or larger uh, gig card in there. Um, I listen to stuff on it all the time. It's drag and drop. It doesn't come with any of the proprietary crap that an iPod has to have with iTunes. And uh, and, and I have an iPod, too, and I like my iPod. My BlackBerry is kind of like my backup iPod, and it has a still camera, and it has a video camera, but it still doesn't have that radio. So the only compelling reason I can give you to buy the new iPod is if you just really want to have your music player have a radio and you like the, the, the sleek functionality of iTunes. Overall, if you have an older generation, you're probably better off just keeping it. I don't know that I'd upgrade. Not a prepper question, really, except having radio communications is important, even if they're one way. Um, but I just think there's less expensive ways to add an FM radio functionality. Uh, there's some pretty small little transistor FM radios you can get your hands on now and uh, make part of your EDC if it's important to you. EDC, by the way, folks, means everyday carry. I probably need to do a show about EDC sometime. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Next question is a cool one. Really interesting. The guy says, I found some plans online I can buy. And what they teach you how to do is to take an old motor and then an alternator off of a truck and build a generator out of it to charge up a battery bank. And, you know, do I think it's worth it? Well, I mean, to be honest, that depends on the plans. 
are they good? I'm going to assume that they're good because that's the only way I can answer this. Obviously, if they're terrible, if they if they don't really, you know, the guy that put them together is a, a theorist instead of a, a guy that's actually done it and, and doesn't, you know, hasn't accounted for some of the things that I'm going to talk about here in a second, then they're useless. Assuming they're good, the biggest value I see in them is they teach you a new skill and you'll learn something, you'll learn how to do it. Now, a generator built out of an old motor, a truck alternator, and batteries. Hmm. Is that a good financial investment? If you can get the stuff for next to nothing, maybe. It uh, depends on the fuel efficiency of the motor, how handy you are, and uh, you know what you're going to pay for the components. You could probably get some junk batteries or even new batteries, because you could do that either way with batteries. Let's not consider them part of the cost of this, because everybody should be running some sort of battery backup anyway. So you, hey, let's say you have battery backup capacity. You're going to add it anyway at some point. So now we're just looking at the main components. The problem is, how fuel efficient is the motor? Odds are that any kind of old motor you're going to come up with to run this thing will never be as fuel efficient as a motor that's specifically designed to run a generator. But, hey, you know, it, you can you can probably get components like this for next to nothing, maybe even free, if you just have them lying around. The next thing is the alternator. It's got to make sure that it's a good alternator, that it's capable of producing uh, power. Now, where have we seen this recently? Well, we, if you watched the, the, the uh, miniseries called The Colony on Discovery, they set up a charging bank system exactly this way. They took uh, a motor, I think it was from a pressure washer, which was like the, the lowest horsepower motor that would be most fuel efficient, they could make the most use of the gas they had, and they hooked it up to an alternator, and they hooked the alternators up to batteries, and it didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? It didn't work because of the gearing ratio uh, between the pulley that they had on the machine and the pulley that was on the alternator wasn't high enough, and the alternator wasn't spinning fast enough. So hopefully your plants kind of give you some guidance in making sure you get that gearing ratio high enough. The other thing that we learned is that you don't get a lot of charge out of one truck alternator. What they ended up doing was ended up hooking up two alternators, and they got a much better uh, charge. It was still a very limited amount of charge. So I like the idea of knowing how to do this. Um, watching that show, as many things in it that were kind of moronic, there were some really valuable things, and that was one of the valuable things I saw on that show. It would be good to know how to do it. It ain't that complicated, though. You're, if you own a car, you have one right now. That's exactly how your car works right now. Your alternator charges your battery. So as long as you have a vehicle that runs, you have a means to charge a battery. As long as you don't run the battery run down too low uh, to... Uh, to be able to uh, start the, the engine. So that's the, that's the upside. Now the downside is your car is an extremely inefficient fuel uh, level to wattage output vehicle. You're running an engine big enough to power a car. Even in idle, it's burning a lot more fuel than is necessary to spin that alternator around and charge a battery or two. But the, the point being, it's not that difficult to build that type of a system uh, because the components are designed specifically to work that way. But if the plants are, let's say, under 20 bucks, hey, buy them. Give it a shot if you have some stuff laying around you can do it with. You'll learn a tremendous amount. Start setting, you know, use that as your basis for your battery backup system and add to it. Now, from a pure financial standpoint, you can go out and buy, like, a cheap um, 1,800-watt generator set uh, for under $200 or around 220 bucks uh, from, uh, what is that, Machine and Tool Place. I'll put a link in the show notes that place. I won't do an affiliate or anything, just, just so you 
can see what I'm talking about. And uh, that's going to be a hell of a lot more efficient than anything you're going to strap together that way. You set up a bank of you know four to six batteries with that, and you've got a pretty good backup power source for a very small investment. Um, and then it's easily expandable to use things like solar and wind from there. So it's not the best financial investment, but it may be a very good investment in your own personal skill set. Next question is one I can't be completely sure I'm right about. I can just tell you why it's the case here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Guy says they're thinking about building a place down in the Texas Hill Country, and they would really love to have a basement. None of the houses in the Texas Hill Country have a basement. Why not? Is there something they're missing? Well, let me tell you why they don't have them here in Dallas-Fort Worth in the North Texas area first. It's because our, our, clay, our soil is primarily clay. Clay has extremely poor drainage characteristics, which means your basement is going to end up full of water. Basically, you have a water bowl in the ground, and in many situations, the concrete foundation will be more permeable than the soaking wet clay. The clay also moves a great deal, which is why we have a lot of foundation problems here in this area. So when you add a basement to a house, if you have a propensity for foundation damage, of course, it becomes worse. So that's why we don't have them here. Why you don't have them in the Texas Hill Country? I bet there's still a lot of clay there, um, based on my knowledge of Hill Country. But I also think it has to do with how much rock formations you have. It may be very expensive to excavate a, uh, a basement in the Hill Country. If you, what you were saying is you really wanted a root cellar. I would talk to a local architect, somebody that builds houses there. I would ask them about the situation and see if it's possible to do it. What are the risks? How much more likely uh, are you to have foundation issues with your home with a slab versus uh, a basement model? Uh, and I would look at the cost of construction of a basement. Now, the nice thing is if you had a basement in the hill country, when a tornado comes, you got a place to go. You have a very unique selling advantage if you ever want to sell the property because you're the only one that has has one, but the expense and the risk may be too high, and my gut is it's going to be. So what would your solution be? Well, if you're going to have a house built, and you're going to have people out there putting a foundation in, having them build a great big hole, and surrounding it with cinder block, and making yourself an off-house root cellar slash basement would probably cost less than doing it underneath your entire house. Now, you don't have a great big piece you can turn into a rec room or whatnot, but since the crew's going to be there anyway, the permits are going to be drawn anyway, they're going to be bringing construction materials anyway, and all you're adding is more labor and more materials, and you're asking for a very basic construction, I think your best uh, advice I could give you in this situation is to figure out how big of a, a root cellar slash kind of basement area you would like, figure out a good place on the property, uh, figure out the right solar and wind exposure for what you want to do. Uh, draw up some very simple plans and talk to your builder and say, I want you guys to put this in for me while you're there. I think that'll cost you a hell of a lot less, and you'll mitigate the risks with the geology that are in the area. And a nice thing is if, you have, if you're in the hill country and you have a sizable piece of land, there's probably some natural rise and fall to your land. So if you have rock formations that are going to make excavation difficult, maybe you're only actually setting half of the base 
basement down into the ground, and the other half's actually covered uh, by excavating a hill formation and mounting over it, which is how a lot of the original uh, root cellars were done. So that's my best solution for you. That's my best guess about why they don't do it there, and uh, that is exactly why we don't do it here on uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which troubles me because as often as I hear uh, tornado sirens in most of our summers, this summer was uh, pretty non-eventful, but the last five years, man, it's been uh, pretty scary in uh, April, May, June, and even into July around here. Um, so I wish we could have basements, but that's why we don't. Let's uh, go ahead and take the last question we have today. No, my last question. We've got two more questions. Uh, this is an interesting question. A person asked me, why am I so unconcerned with OPSEC? For those that don't know, OPSEC is uh, operational security. person that asked me that was named Debbie. person that asked the last question was named All Bad from the forum, the, uh, the basements in Hexas Hill Country. Sorry, I'm leaving that out. It's a new feature uh, that I'm doing. But Debbie wants to know why I'm so loose on my OPSEC. In other words, I don't try to hide who I am or where I am and... Uh, you could probably find my house if you really wanted to. Um, why don't I take the conventional prepper attitude of, you know, I hide my identity at least to some degree? Well, there's a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, my place in Arlington, I've talked about this before, if we ever have a true, legitimate, massive, national level, shit hit the fan, riots in the streets, people, roving hordes are out there, tinfoil hatters are right, they're rounding people up, whatever, I'm not going to be here in Arlington. That's why I have a bug out location. So, you know, somebody may know who I am and choose to show up at my house to take, you know, pick over whatever's left, but somebody's going to show up and do that anyway if we're in that scenario, especially once the house is unoccupied and basically abandoned. So that's a risk for my neighborhood anyway. Um, in all other events, regional, uh, neighborhood level, uh, in scope, the far more likely events, I'm not leaving my neighborhood. I'm going to be the guy that's in my neighborhood helping my neighbors out, trying to help them put things back together. I'm going to be the one that's organizing my neighbors. I've made that commitment. So I'm not worried about my neighbors showing up. And since I've made that commitment to my neighbors, I know that in that scenario, my neighbors are going to be there to help us defend the whole piece of property if we have to. And uh, I'm comfortable with that decision. And I know some people may not be, but you've got to be willing to take a stand at some point. And you've got to be willing to say that, you know what, all's not lost in this scenario when I'm going to stay put. The, the, the other side of this is, if you notice, it's, it'd be a lot harder for you to figure out where my place in Arkansas is. Since that's my fallback location, it'll stay that way. I'll never be uh, so loose as that you'll be able to figure out where the hell I live up there. Uh, it'd be damn near impossible to figure out where my place up there is. And, it's gonna stay, and when I move there permanently, it's going to stay that way. Now, as far as my name and everything like that, I couldn't do this show and have legitimacy and credibility with you guys if I was, you know, hiding who I was. If I did videos that cut myself off at the neck so you couldn't see me, or I wore a hood or some nonsense like that, or if I said, this is the survival podcast, being podcasted by Anonymous. I mean, come on. Um, the reality is in the, our world today, if people know your full name and they know your general vicinity of where you live, they can find you. And, and the last and I think the big one is a lot of folks, I understand why you don't want your neighbors to know you have six months worth of food. I get that. I support your decision in that. But you folks that think you're hiding from the government, you're in forums and you're, you know, you're involved and you're doing stuff like that, and, uh, but you never use your proper name and you don't think the government can figure out who you are if they wanted to, you're deluding yourself. 
You absolutely are. The government knows who everybody is that they actually take an interest in and want to know. And there's so many things that can be done with technology today, you're not hiding from anybody. And uh, you're not going to somehow be like, they'll come get all your neighbors but not you. So I don't think that the question was asked that way, but for those that are on the fringe, the foil fringe, the edge of the foil, um, that's for you. You're not hiding. Um, I did a video one time when I was up in Arkansas. It's on the YouTube channel when the truck broke down. And I had a lot of people really concerned that I let my license plate number be seen. Well, I just drove the work past about 35,000 people that if they want to see my license plate, can see my license plate. So I'm lapsed on OPSEC because I don't see the point in my situation. If I were some of you guys that are in scenarios where no one really knows who you are, you're not doing a daily show for God's sakes, you might want to be a little tighter on OPSEC. I understand that. But... If you're going to be part of the public eye, if you're going to stand up and say who you are, what you are, what you do, and try to make a difference, I don't have a choice. I have to say who I am. I have to be open with who I am. I have to be open with the reality that it does put me at risk to a degree, but I think that it's more important important for me to take the risk so I can help you than to not take the risk and not help as many people as possible. In other words, when a law enforcement officer responds to a call because somebody's breaking into a lady's house. He's definitely taking a risk of being shot. When our soldiers get sent overseas, they're taking a risk of being blown up or shot. Because they believe what they're doing is important. And I do not want to compare myself to that level of risk. Because those people are doing something that's way more important than what I'm doing. But when it comes down to it, I make the decision the same way. My audience is important to me. And as important as my existing audience is to me, reaching one more person every day is even more important to me. Spreading the word, making sure people are prepared is important to me. If that comes with risk, so be it. So I'm okay with most of the folks out there being a little tighter on their OPSEC. I understand it. In fact, I would even recommend it. But for me and for other people that are in the industry that are out here trying to help, we have to take the risk because it's the only way we can be effective communicators. Okay, now the last question of the day. Uh, this is a really great question. It comes from somebody named Chris, and I think it's Chris is short for Christine, based on pink font in the email. Uh, Chris or Christine asked, Jack, if you had 60 seconds to just open somebody to the concept of being a modern survivalist or a prepper or self-sufficiency advocate or anything like you talk about, just to get them open to the idea, what would you say to them in 60 seconds? Well, I would simply say, what is the most important thing in your life to you right now? The things that are so important you would be willing to risk everything to support. And most people are going to turn around and they're going to tell you, my wife, my kids, my brothers, my sisters, my mom, my dad, my family, my friends. And then I'm going to say to them, and how many different things do you guys rely on on a daily basis just to feed and clothe yourselves that are at risk? And they'll tell me. And they'll maybe never even thought about it before. But I'll get them thinking about that. I'll say, hey, look, you know, what if you just couldn't go to the grocery store, right? And they'll say, well, why not? I'll say, well, if the truckers go on strike. You know, it doesn't have to be these end-of-the-world scenarios. And I think that's where we lose people, folks. We start talking about the end of the world as we know it and stuff. People go off the deep end. And they're like, you guys are nuts. And, and there's, you know, if that's the first conversation, maybe they have a point. Because that's not what you should be talking to someone that's not involved with it yet. So I would ask them, you know, truckers strike. We just had this flu thing. It turned out to be a non-event. But we could have a real flu. What if the government said you had to stay in your home for 60 days? You couldn't leave because there was a disease out there that could kill people. Could you guys survive for 60 days? 
and you're going to get a no. Because most of these people can't. If they're honest with themselves, they're going to say that. And then all I'm going to say is, how important are those people that you just talked about to you? What would you be willing to do to save the life of your son or your daughter or what have you? What would you be willing to do to make sure that they didn't starve or go hungry? And then they'll tell me. And I'll say, well, in the scenario that I just described, you wouldn't have to do any of that. All you would have to do is buy a little bit more at your grocery store right now while it's easy to do and just have a little bit of extra food around. And if you do that and we end up in one of these scenarios, you'll be able to take care of those people. And that's it. And from there, once people become open to that concept, they start to guide themselves along the way. And they start to take in the pieces and the parts of prepping that are most important and most conducive to their lives. Remember, you can't tell somebody else how they should prep. You really can't. And you shouldn't. I am on this show every day talking about this stuff. And I don't tell somebody else how to prep. I tell people all the ways that there are to prep. All the things that you can do. My opinions, good and bad, on different varieties of things. My thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. The things I've done that have worked. The things that I've done have blown up in my face. And then I say, you have to take it from there and do it on your own. Because you have to make your plan your own. You see... The problem is that I think a lot of people take to, when they finally decide to tell somebody else uh, about prepping, to with the zeal of, let's say, the evangelical that's going out and spreading the gospel, where they just they want to be able to throw out a few words, you know, um, a couple quotes from the Bible, and, you know, they, and then understanding that the truth sets people free, so if the person's ready for the truth, they'll hear it, they'll believe it, and boom, and it's done. Well, this is not religion, and this is not spirituality, and it's certainly not a cult. It's a rational, well-thought-out thing. And people that have never thought about it before need time to take it in. They need time to apply it to their lives with their stressors. But I'll tell you what, it never works if you make it about them, because people have the not-me belief. What if you get cancer? Oh, it won't be me. Right? You know? What if you have a heart attack? Oh, if they shove down the, the third bacon cheeseburger of the week, it won't be me. But if you make it about the people they love and their responsibility and desire to take care of them, then you open their mind and that's all you can do and all you should do in 60 seconds is simply ask them the questions that make them come to the point where they realize they don't have an answer. And when people don't have an answer, it creates a vacuum in their lives. And nature abhors a vacuum. And the person will fill the vacuum. So your job is not initially to spread the message of prepping directly. It's to create the vacuum, to expose the weakness. That person's walking around right now. They have a weakness. If for a month we can't get food, they're in deep trouble. Their kids will go hungry. That is the way it is. You're not going to say, your kids are going to starve because you suck. That won't work, trust me. But if you simply ask the questions and let them come to that conclusion themselves, they'll start to realize, you know what, a couple of extra cans of tuna fish, maybe some spaghetti sauce, some spaghetti, a little bit of beans, a little bit of extra cornbread mix, not a bad idea. They put that in the pantry and they feel good about it. Maybe they'll tell you that they did it and they feel good about it. And if they want to know more, you give them as much as they want and never more than they ask for. And hey, ask them to tune into my show. Maybe I can reach the people you can't. Because remember, one of the greatest things we've learned from history and from the Bible, and I'm not preaching at you, I'm just telling you where I see the truth, is a prophet has no honor in his own country. Really hard for me to teach my wife to shoot a gun. Bring in a coach, third party, no problem. She's shooting and hitting right away. 
Once she realized he was telling her the same things I was, she started listening to me. But the people you're closest to have the hardest problem listening to you. Dave Ramsey calls it powdered butt syndrome when it comes to your parents. Parents will never listen to you because it's hard to take advice on finance or life from someone whose butt you once powdered. And I think there's a lot of that in, in a lot of directions with the people that are closest to you. So the best advice I can give you is ask the question, let people find their own answers. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today. And I think... You know, that's the thing you need to be asking yourself every day anyway, folks. What are the biggest weaknesses that I have right now? And build your prepping and your planning and your life around compensating for those weaknesses one at a time, slowly, methodically, in the right way. And that's a great way to start living that better life. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream. You can holler, it really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent